Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Before I introduce our guest for the day, I have a word from our sponsors. You're here because you're looking to grow as a fundraiser. And New Story is today's sponsor because they're looking to hire fundraisers with a growth mindset. This nonprofit organization works to pioneer solutions to end global homelessness. You might have heard about them from their work in 3D printing homes or as a fast company, most innovative company, three-time winner. And now they're looking for you. You can find all the details at newstorycharity.org. That's N-E-W-S-T-O-R-Y-C-H-A-R-I-T-Y.org. NewStoryCharity.org. Hi, welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Olson, and I'm joined today by my co-host and partner in crime, Roy Jones. If you enjoy this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us a review. Hey, this is Andrew Olson with the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. I am super excited to be here with my good friend, Jenny Floria. So Jenny is the principal at Floria Consulting, and she and I have, I'd say we've grown up in the industry together. And we enjoy bantering back and forth about all things fundraising. Jenny, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much. Glad to be here. Hey, glad you're here. So before, we're, we're going to talk a lot today about data and the importance of understanding it and leveraging it correctly to drive value for nonprofit organizations. But before we get into that, could you just take a few minutes and tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what Floria Consulting is? Sure, yes. Uh, so I come from a background, I, I could say how many years I've been working, but I think that that would uh, woefully date me. So You started at 12, it's okay. Yes, yeah, it's fine, exactly. And uh, I worked, started out my life, my career life in uh, working for at an agency that I worked exclusively with nonprofit clients, helping them raise money through direct mail efforts. And from that, I got to see a lot of what worked, a lot of what didn't work, and lots of different ways in which nonprofits uh, succeeded and ways they sometimes built their own barriers. Uh, from there, I went to go work for two small nonprofits in the Twin Cities area, really enjoyed working with both of them, and then recently took all of that knowledge and started my own thing. I really enjoy helping small to mid-sized nonprofits, people who can't afford the really big agency and the big thinkers, um, but all you need is one person who just knows exactly what to do to help them raise money and be more effective with their donors. And so that is that is my sweet spot of what I do. I help with a lot of strategy, a lot of how to speak with donors, how to build relationships with them. And for a few, I've helped launch or relaunch databases. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So let's jump into this. You authored a chapter in my book from last year, 101 Biggest Mistakes Nonprofits Make and How You Can Avoid Them. And I had to tell you that like, when I first started reading your chapter, I was laughing myself because of the story you tell about you and your husband and the carpet <laughs> that you bought. So tell us, tell us that story and, and why it sure. connects to what we're talking about. Sure. So I, like many, many things, I, I relate my life a lot of times to things that I do in, in business. Once upon a time, my husband and I owned this home. It was really, it had been built in the seventies and had never been touched. We, we walked in with orange and brown shag carpeting throughout and we decided we needed to do an update. So in our bedroom, we decided we needed a gray carpet. So we have a little tiny paint chip. We go to the carpet store and we're looking at all these shades of gray. And my husband picks out this one that's called gray slate. And I look at it and I say, 
okay, it might be called gray slate, but it sure looks blue to me. And he says, no, it's called gray slate. It must be gray. We have this argument over this carpet for probably 10 minutes. And finally, I'm like, forget it. That's fine. We'll just get gray slate. It's fine. So two weeks later, the installer comes in, he installs a carpeting. And the minute it's down, I can tell it looks blue. And my husband comes home and he looks at it and he says, well, this isn't the right carpet. This is blue. And I say, no, it's not. And, and he argues with the installer trying to say, no, 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 you, you got the wrong carpet. And the installer shows him the back of the carpet that says gray slate. And we had to live with blue carpet for the rest of the time that we were in that house because he insisted that gray slate was this, this blue carpet was gray slate. And my takeaway from that is you don't always get what you want, but you get what you ask for. <laughs> and I feel like there's so many times when I've worked with people in databases, whether it be I'm on the agency side and I'm seeing my client interface with their database team, or I was at a nonprofit and I'm talking with people internally on their databases, often what you get is what you ask for, but not what you want. Yeah, that's so true. And it's a great story and, and a great anecdote for this. And, and it reminds me of, you know, I, I remember at one point, in fact, a, a nonprofit that you and I both worked in, <laughs> uh, where we, we were trying to accomplish something and simply got our logic backwards in a data request, right? So we, we asked for an audience, but the way in which I created the request actually made it so that I was ended up mailing the exact group of people that I didn't want to mail. Uh, oh, sim simply because I was dumb and didn't think about it the right way, you know? Uh, <laughs> um, and, but I think that kind of, that kind of slip up happens so frequently. In a similar example, uh, I worked at a nonprofit where we were trying to mail to our active donors. So I had said, please give me all of your, all of the active donors. And so I get this count. It's a very, you know, I'm, I'm going to make it up 10,121. And in the meantime, I said, all right, I, I want everybody too, who's in our database, who hasn't given in 24 months, and we're going to also mail them, and we're going to reactivate them. And so we do these mailings. We reactivate a whole bunch of lapsed people, and I'm excited um, because they hadn't been touched for a while. And so then six months later, I ask for this count of active donors again, and I get 10,121. And I thought, well, that's odd because I know that we just reactivated a whole bunch of lapsed people, we should have more active donors than that. And so I went to the person who did the query for me and she said, well, part of the query is that I only select those whose ID was created in the time frame you requested. So if they've been in the database for five or more years, but right, exactly, <laughs> you're getting the logic of this. If they've been in the database for five years and they gave them the last 12 months, they were not included in the query. Wow. So we were going through this process of reactivating all of the lapsed people <laughs> and never again asking them for a second gift. And then creating more lapsed people, yes. And creating more lapsed people because we're letting time go by. Right. And it was simply in her understanding. And, and again, it's not her fault. Sure. She wasn't understanding the strategy. She hadn't been brought in on those conversations. No one ever sat down with her and said, why? Why, are we, why am I asking you for this data? What am I going to do with this data? Because she didn't understand that, she just did what she thought was what I needed. Once she understood, I said, no, 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 we, we want everybody who gave a gift. I don't care how long they've been in the database because they need to hear from us again. Oh, I didn't realize that. Let me run this for you. All of a sudden we had 15,000, 17,000, whatever, all of these 
reactivated people pulled into our, our hmm. mailing. Yeah. So you talk about the idea and the challenge of people who oftentimes are not what I would call like strategic fundraisers or marketers making decisions that are driving the, yes. the, the data that's used in, for fundraising. Talk a little bit more about the challenge there and what you've seen. I think the biggest piece of that is I, what I have seen so frequently is a lot of people gather around a table, be it you know, a director of development, the annual giving manager, a lot of consultants and come in and they have a half day discussion on creative and they have a two day discussion on uh, latest trends and what the economy is doing to results and, and other things. And at the end of the day, they put together a strategy. Here's what we plan on doing. And then they say, oh, and by the way, uh, we'll just give this data select to the person who runs the data. And no one ever talks about the audience. Hmm. No one ever talks about what's going into that audience poll. Uh, the person who is closest to the data often isn't in those discussions. And that's where I feel like so many nonprofits just say, oh, well, it's, it's just a task. No, it's not a task. It's the most important part of how you're raising money is who are you communicating with? Yeah, absolutely. So case in point on this, I have a, a organization that we partner with who a few months ago had a, a data consultant come in and, and, you know, after some analysis, he, he said, well, do you guys know that two years ago you just sort of summarily suppressed 20,000 records and, and, Oh, was there a strategy surprise. around that? And, and the same kind of thing. There was a lot of talk about the creative, a lot of talk about trends, a lot of talk about how to how to improve performance for the people that were left. But um, no one realized that, wow, we have this huge contingent, like half the file that had just been marked do not contact. And, and there's they, they don't actually know why. You know, so uh, overnight, they were able to load yeah. a whole lot more people in but a lot of those folks had lapsed and a lot of the value had been lost because uh, there wasn't that strategic eye saying, well, wait a minute, you know, how, how does this compare to the last poll? You know, how do yeah. we go from maybe mailing 30,000 people to now mailing 15 and not, not realize that that's a problem, you know? So that makes a lot of sense. I was going to say, we have a similar story in that, in that one client where I was at, we, again, two years worth of steadily declining trends and have a huge, huge gathering with lots of very strategic, wonderful thinkers sitting around the table. And at the last minute, we decided to have the database person come because ironically, he lived really close to the client's place of business. And that's where the meeting was happening. And we said, you know, it's really close to where you live. Why don't you plan to come in for, you know, at least a half day of the conversation? So he's in for this and he's listening to us talk creative. He's listening to us talk marketplace and talking the, the industry as a whole and, and talking the econ. And he finally raises his hand. He says, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't mean to bring this off topic, but I have a question about the audience. And so we're like, okay, sure. What's your question? He says, well, you know, you have this suppression file that about 18 months ago, it grew by 300%. And I don't, know why. And I don't know if you noticed, but the majority of the names that you're paying to bring in and that you're paying for are hitting up against a suppression file. Do you know why did this grow suddenly? What happened? Because we were there at the client's place of business, the giving manager stepped out of the room and within 10 minutes had an answer. 
The answer was that they had done an internal mailing. It was very specialized. It was specifically, I want to say an invitation to the executive director's home for some something or other. And the admin assistant who did that mailing for the executive director had marked everybody who was not supposed to get that particular mailing, do not mail. Oh. It was former board members, top volunteers, all kinds of people that oh, wow. were suddenly suppressed. So your core <laughs> top house people that you should be mailing to had been suppressed from that mailing. Yikes. Or not even from that mailing, but from the next 18 months worth of mailings. Wow, 18 months. Okay. 18 that's, months. That that's so, the kind of thing we're talking about here. Yeah. Yeah. And and I have a story like that. You have a story like that. My question is to other nonprofits, do you have a story like that and you don't know it yet? Oh, I'm sure. You know, yeah. I, this reminds me I had a, another organization that I was consulting with about two years ago and and we were looking at their data and, and kind of found something similar. And we said, Well, what you know, what drove the decision to suppress this group of people? Because there's nothing on their constituent records to say like they called in or they responded to a mailing and said, remove me or anything like that. And they said, Oh, that's Peggy. And so what's Peggy? Peggy. Like, is that, is that an acronym? And they said, (laughs) Oh no, no. Peggy was an employee who was here eight years ago. And she said, if someone didn't do take an action, you know, I don't remember what it was specifically was, but it was like, you know, within a three month period since their last gift, then we took them off the list. And that's the Peggy rule. I'm like, Peggy's not here anymore. And that's a terrible rule. Why do you continue to use it? Well, because Peggy was the smartest person to ever run our database. What an arbitrary rule. Right? Right? Wow. The Peggy rule. It's those kind of things that I think, you know, organizations don't step back and audit their, their data and their business rules regularly enough to catch the Peggy rule or to catch, right. you know, the, the do not mail that was really sort of should have just been an exclusion for that mailing, you know, but you also talk about the fact that there are people making data decisions. Usually I, I'm guessing more senior level people who don't understand the data either. Right. Talk, talk about that side and the challenges there. Right. I think that that's the piece where the most miscommunication happens, where you do need to have somebody who is that go between who, understands the strategy and what the giving manager or the executive director or whomever is trying to do and the person who is pulling the data, who's actually pulling the data. So there's often a gap between what those two sides are doing. And oftentimes uh, the person, the strategist will say, well, I just, I just want all active donors. While the person pulling the data says, what's your definition of an active of donor? What, what does that mean? Somebody who gave in the last 12 months, 24 months? Do they have to have given at least twice? Uh, is it everybody who gave less than $5? What's, what's your definition of that? And I have often heard the responses, I'll let you figure that out. I don't know. I'm not in the details. <laughs> your job to be in the details. You just pull who you think is appropriate. But the person who's supposed to pull the information wasn't in the room, wasn't in the conversation about the strategy. Yeah, that's a, you know, now that you say it, I, I can say, yes, I, I've heard that so many times. Yes. And you're, you're right. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's that typical left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing and, and they're not talking and they're certainly not in the same rooms. And, and I'm willing to bet that that costs organizations at yes. least tens of thousands of dollars a year, if not hundreds of thousands or more. Yes. Yes. And one of the 
things that I have implemented everywhere I go. And I've worked at a medium to small size shops. And I still insist on this, even though they're all like, well, why don't you just go talk to the database person and just tell them what you want? And I said, because sometimes you say the right thing. Sometimes you say the wrong thing. You don't have documentation of it. So everywhere I go, I have created a database request form and it sounds silly and ridiculous when there's only one person sitting there and the database is only 5,000 names strong. But what that does is the person requesting the data, one, the two things I have to do right at the very beginning is say, who is your audience? And more importantly, why? Mm -hmm. Why do I need this information? Because we're doing an event and therefore I need the geographic area around this event. Or um, we're going to be going out to people who haven't donated to us because we're doing a special appeal to them. Therefore, I need this. And those things make sure that the person pulling the data understands the why. And then when you go through a database request form, it makes the person doing the ask do all of the thinking of, okay, you said you want all donors. Are you including our current board members? Do we want them to get this mail piece? Or do we want to control how they get that mail piece by giving it to them in a board meeting and saying, here's your piece in a more personalized manner? Do we need these kinds of volunteers? Here's our little audience member over here. By the way, these people came to an event a year ago. If this is an event mailing, we should make sure we include them even if they didn't give at that event. All of those kinds of things. It makes the person doing the request think through these things because the last thing the data person wants to do is do a poll and then still, oh, didn't I tell you this is for event? We actually just need people in the geographic area around our organ. Okay, now I have to redo the whole poll. Yep. Oh, oh did we tell you that this is a women's event? We actually just want the women. Okay, now I got to redo the poll. And, and it becomes an iteration. It wastes time. It wastes money. It's just easier just to go through it once, know exactly, just think through the 10 steps of who do I need, who do I not need, and make that happen just once and happen correctly. So true. You know, this reminds me, the other step that I've learned painfully over time, when you're setting up your data, you really need to, especially if you're like sending out, like you said, an invitation or a direct mailing or something, you need to know what you're going to be putting in that mail piece or that event so that... Yeah, and I ran into this just you know within the last year where we had pulled data for something and then look at the letter and I said, well, wait a minute, we have fields in the letter for variable data that's coming out of the database to personalize the appeal that we didn't ask for in the data set. We asked for a lot of data, but no one looked at the letter and said, oh, well, you're, you know, we want to calculate total giving in the last 12 months and tell the donor that that's what they'd given, you know? To, to make this more personal. Well, that's a great strategy, but again, nobody communicated it in a data request. So that's that data is not in there and right. we don't have the data necessary to calculate it, to do it on our own. You know, so again, you go back to the drawing board and, and now you've wasted a lot of time of the person who's pulling the data. You've wasted time for, you know, the, the people who are running the marketing and right. depending on when you find it out, you might also waste press time and dollars. You know? Exactly. So I, I think that kind of real-time intentional checkpoint is really important. Yeah. So the data request is valuable. What are some other things, you know, what are the like top two or three things that you would say, you know, hey, if you want to make sure that you're really strategically understanding and using your data, what are the things that somebody needs to be thinking about? You know, one thing that I say, and again, this is, I am a self-described data geek and I love 
looking at how data can better help nonprofits do their jobs and raise more money. And whenever I tell people this, sometimes I get the cringe of, oh God, data, oh, it just, <laughs> mm. and other times I hear people say, oh, I love, inf you know, I love that kind of information too. So I would say if, if you are an executive director of a very small organization and your you know, data isn't your thing, then I would say make sure you have someone there for whom data is and not just the person who pulls it and does other things. Have someone thinking strategically about it. One thing that you should be doing every single year is a data audit. And I know it sounds ugly. It's actually quite simple. The place to start is literally pulling out of your database every single field that's currently in your database and account of how often it's populated. Hmm. So we did that one time at, at a place I had worked. I, I'd been there for all of six months and you know uh, my, my mailings were in the you know less than 5,000. When I went to do an active donor mailing, I was mailing fewer than 5,000 people. And after I'd been there a while, I got into some sidebar conversation with the database manager who told me that there's over 40,000 records in the database. I was like, how can we have 40,000 records? But when I go to put a mail file, I only have, I have less than 5,000 records. And the response was, well, we don't have addresses on the majority of these. So, well, do, do you understand that that's something we can actually remedy? We can actually do a data, we can do an append, an address append. You know, we have some information about either an email address or other things. We have some other identifying factors. We can append email or append postal addresses to these so that we can get more names that I can actually mail. Um, and so many of those people had been to events, had not been asked to provide their postal address at the event, which I understand why event people hate to do that. That makes sense. But we can get it later. Mm -hmm. And they had never gone through that step. If we hadn't gotten a count, if I hadn't understood, there are 40,000 records in the database. You're only able to mail less than 5,000 of them. Where are the gaps? You know, that would have told us a story earlier. So I think doing an annual data audit, making sure you're capturing data in the right field. And it sounds so small and tiny, but I've had that experience of phone number fields being captured in one of four different fields. Hmm. So then when you go to do a poll to say, okay, we're going to ask our board members now to do a, a calling campaign and thank our donors, the poor database person is just pulling their hair out because we have a phone number in one of four different fields and we don't know which one's a current, which one's active and what they even go to. Is it a business? Is it a cell? Am I going to disrupt this person's spouse? And um, it's just a mess. So I would say make sure you, you get somebody there who's doing who's looking at those things and have them go through those steps. I mean, that makes good sense. In fact, it reminds me, I was just with another client a couple of weeks ago and uh, fairly new staff working with an organization and they have three different salutation fields. Oh dear. <laughs> right? Oh my and gosh. So primary salutation, personal salutation, and another one that, that ended up being the actual one that they tend to use for their communications. But unless someone knew that, you right. might say, oh, I pulled the first salutation field that I found and it's blank in 60% of the instances, you know? So right. all of a sudden you have a whole lot of letters with dear friend mm -hmm. and an organization saying, why aren't we being more, you know, personal, personal. with our, with our supporters? Rightly so. It's just that no one knew that there was a hidden field that, that talked about it. You know, I have some clients that also, in addition to the, the data audit, they do a flag audit on a regular basis. Okay. 
And, and I think this, this one has been fascinating to me. And, and uh, one in particular where we actually, we run a count on flags every month when we yes. update their data. Okay. And, and what, what it helped us discover is, okay, there are some instances typically in the gift processing arena or in the sort of donor engagement, donor stewardship arena where, um, where there's over flagging happening similar to your example where the person just marked everybody as do not mail. This organization had a, a person uh, on staff who anytime someone said, you mail me too much, they were marking them as complete do not mail, right? Mm -hmm. When in reality, they had options for quarterly mailings, for newsletters only, for you know a, a couple different things like that. But we were able to see on a month over month basis, oh wow, so your do not mail list jumped 22% in a 30 day period, 45 day sure. period, what happened here? And yeah. then it could go back and have that conversation. So I think, you know, the a flag audit is also something that's really, really valuable. Idea. Talk to me about this. I know a lot of organizations, when they talk about communication preferences, they want to be as custom to the donor as possible. And it ends up creating, you know, sometimes 20 or 30 different options that seem like just complete chaos to manage. What, what's your recommendation on like how to do this in an effective way for the donors, but also how not to like completely overwhelm your staff with too many things to, to track? Absolutely. I think that that's <laughs> the biggest thing where if you have clarity around what those flags are supposed to do, that will eliminate you from creating 30 different mm -hmm. ways in which we have to flag people for various communication preferences. I think that that's one area. So one example I can think of is if someone sends back a mail piece and says, don't mail me anymore, you should have a do not mail flag, but you should also have a do not solicit flag so that they might say, don't mail me. I don't want to receive mail anymore. That doesn't mean that they want to be opted out of your email list. Hmm. Yep. And, or perhaps you're the kind of organization that would say, no, if they say mail, they mean don't contact. We're going to mark them. Do not email also. So I think you can have four or five basic flags. You should have one that says do not mail. You should have one that says do not solicit. You should have one that says do not email perhaps or rather a way for them to opt out of your email. And if you're calling, one that says no phone. But what you really need around those things are clarification as to what that means. So if it says no phone, does your organization define that as a major gift officer can't make a phone call to them? Hmm. Or is it that if you are to do a telemarketing campaign, you cannot provide their phone number to the telemarketing firm? It's a great point. What is the definition of no phone? What's the definition of no solicit? And I can tell you, I've had hour long discussions with people around <laughs> what is the definition of no solicit? Because so one great one, great debate that we've had is when we see do not solicit, I, I would say if I'm sending out an appeal. Absolutely. That is a direct solicitation. I am asking you for money. I will not mail you. You said don't solicit me. So I won't. On the other end, I would argue that if I'm going to invite you to my gala, you should perhaps receive an invitation. You've been a donor of ours. We appreciate what you've done for us. We want you to feel invited and welcome. On the other hand, we're also gonna ask you for a gift at that event. Is that a do not solicit? Is it not? I think that's up for each organization to have those discussions so that those flags get used accordingly and consistently. If one person is entering the data in a certain way and someone else is entering it in a different way, you've just broken the system. Yeah. So having written documentation to say, 
when someone says do not mail, here are the two flags to mark and making sure everybody who touches the data does those things, that's when you will have more consistency and be able be better able to use your data. Yeah, that's such an important point. And I find that so few organizations spend the time to actually build a set of business rules around their data. Mm-hmm. And the, the scary thing is, I mean, if you think about, you know, other than some of the largest organizations in the world that for whom you know, real estate might be their biggest asset, for most organizations, that data file is the number one most valuable asset they have. Absolutely. And, and to not have business rules that allow anyone who's interacting with it to know this is how we do business around it is really scary. The only time it seems that, I shouldn't say the only time, but many times, organizations are forced to create business rules when they outsource it. So hmm. if you were to go to a caging facility and you said, we want you guys to process our donations, it's going to be easier, cheaper for us to have you guys do it, then we don't have to have this massive flux of staff time at the end of the year. The, the caging facility will require that you have business rules because they don't want to mess up your information. They're going to make you go through that checklist and create business rules for them. So many organizations don't use caging facilities. I don't understand why you don't create those business rules for yourself. It just seems like that makes so much more sense to do it for yourself and make sure you are using that correctly. Yeah, I agree. Especially because I see still so many organizations that have volunteers that are entering data in databases and that's even scarier. I mean, like, I love the idea of using volunteer labor and, and I think it's a, you know, a good outlet for volunteers that want to make an impact. But again, if they don't know what they don't know, then you're right. just creating a, a, a problem scenario. Right. right. Yeah. Exactly. Jenny, this has been great. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for sharing these insights with us. If somebody wants to get in touch with you to either talk more about data or m- more about accessing your services, what's the best way for people to reach you? Sure. Uh, you can contact me via email. It's Jenny at floriaconsulting.com. Floria is spelled like the state of Florida without a D. Nice place to be right now. Uh, You can also, uh, my website is floriaconsulting.com. There's a form on there that you can contact me that way as well. Awesome. Thank you again. Appreciate you being here. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, It will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.